Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. Hello. This week we're sitting in for doctors Chris and co who are still off enjoying their summer break. We've got a great show packed full of interviews and features from all over the world. And we'll be discovering the science behind the beer goggles. Do people really look more attractive after you've had a few drinks? We'll also seek out the latest treatments for age-related macular degeneration, the leading cause of blindness in the UK. Plus, could chemistry and hip-hop be a good combination? Carl Jurassi, the scientist who developed the oral contraceptive pill back in the 50s, lays down some hip-hop rhymes, and they're not at all bad. Yes, yes, y'all, you know that it's on. The rapper on the mic is MC Flogiston. In the chemistry arena, I'm taking home the title. Sire, I'm dire, the fire... More chemistry rap later on in the show. And sticking at the music stroke science interface, we hear about a new experimental album inspired by the lives of scientists. And as if that's not enough, we find out why the Yeti hunters on the fringes of science actually play a very important role and why our imagination is a powerful tool. I don't have to chew a mouthful of thumbtacks to know that it's a marvellously bad idea. Imagination allows us to be the animal that learns from mistakes we've never made. All this and in Kitchen Science, Dave and I will be swinging a baseball bat to find the sweet spot and find out how this can make the difference between a home run and going home early. Plus, Sarah Castaperi will be back to take on some more of your questions, so do keep your questions and comments coming in. Get them into us by email at chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. So, Diana, have you ever heard of the phenomenon called wearing the beer goggles? Well, no one's ever said it to me, anyway. (laughs) Uh, Isn't this the idea that people become more attractive the more alcohol you drink? That's right, and for a long time people have suspected that alcohol does make us find people more attractive. But now, researchers over at Bristol University have actually tested it out and confirmed it, scientific proof of the beer goggle effect. But it wasn't as straightforward as you may think, as one surprising effect that drinking alcohol actually makes everyone appear more attractive not just members of the opposite sex. Marcus Munafo was one of the researchers involved. So, Marcus, how did you actually test this out? Well, we studied social drinkers, relatively young social drinkers who were mostly in their 20s, and we brought them into the laboratory and randomised them to receive a drink which either contained alcohol or didn't. And then we asked them to rate 20 male and 20 female faces for how attractive they found them. We were interested in the effects of alcohol, but we were also interested in whether or not the effects if they were there, might be specific to opposite-sex faces. And so for that reason, we explicitly recruited uh, people who reported themselves as being heterosexual. It seems to me that when you give somebody a drink and you tell them that this is an alcoholic drink, there may be a placebo effect. They assume that drinking alcohol makes other people seem more attractive. So maybe that affected things. Did you control for that placebo? 
We did as best we can. Uh, we conducted the study with double blind, so people received a drink which was either vodka and tonic with lime flavouring or just tonic water with lime flavouring, and those drinks were chilled so that, uh, in fact, when you're actually drinking the uh, the drink, whether it contains alcohol or not, you're uh, not actually able to tell. The experimenter was also blind to the drink condition, so in that respect, we did what we could to avoid expectancy effect. The problem is, of course, that when you're dealing with a drug like alcohol, half an hour later, the effects uh, become apparent, so it's difficult for participants to remain uh, blind to which condition they're in over the course of, uh, say, 45 minutes or an hour. But certainly when they were consuming the drink, they didn't seem to uh, be able to tell the difference between the two. What did you actually find? We found what you might expect, which is that people in the alcohol condition rated faces as, on average, about 10% more attractive than people in the placebo condition. But we found a couple of interesting things. One was that actually the amount of alcohol that we used was relatively small. So it was equivalent to maybe a large glass of wine or a pint and a half of beer, and that was enough to elicit this 10% difference in ratings of attractiveness. And that occurred without people showing any changes in their self-reported mood. So we asked people to also rate how they felt in themselves, if they felt happy, anxious, and so on. And there was no difference between the alcohol and placebo conditions in ratings of mood. The other interesting thing was that there was no effect specific to opposite sex faces. So men rated other men as more attractive as well as women, and women rated other women as more attractive as well as men. So could this be a general thing in that alcohol makes us more receptive to things? Does it make everything more beautiful? We know that there are different parts of the brain that specifically look for faces, but would this also make, say, uh, painting more attractive? Well, this is something that we'd like to follow up. So we didn't include a control condition of, for example, um, pictures of animals or pictures of landscapes that people could meaningfully describe as attractive. And in future studies, it would be interesting to do that, to see whether or not the effect is specific to faces or not. Because clearly, an interesting question is, as you say, the extent to which this effect is specific to facial expressions or a more general effect on how we process visual stimuli, beauty in the environment, and so on. So sociologically, what does this mean for us? What does it mean that when we drink uh, even a relatively small amount of alcohol, we find people, both of the same sex and the opposite sex, more attractive? Well, this is part of a broader program of research which is looking at the way in which alcohol affects processing of faces and, in particular, the processing of emotional cues in faces and, uh, as in this study, attractiveness. And the reason we're interested in that is because certain behaviours become more common after alcohol and they include unsafe sex, aggression and so on. And some of those behaviours have an impact on society. So it's worthwhile understanding what mechanisms give rise to the increased likelihood of those behaviours. Our hypothesis is that if alcohol is affecting the way in which we interpret faces, that might drive these behaviours, particularly because facial expressions are a strong component of social interactions, if you like. So given that there are effects on ratings of facial attractiveness, even at quite small doses, that could in part help explain why people drink alcohol in the first place. It makes the world around you a more pleasant place. It makes you more likely to drink in certain environments or when you're around certain people. But it also might explain why people are more likely to engage in uh, particular behaviours such as unsafe sex, for example. So does the fact that we appear to process faces differently account for why we become more violent? You'd have thought if we think things are more attractive, then in fact we'd be more attracted to them and less likely to become violent. Well, there are two aspects to that. One is that we have a separate series of studies which is explicitly looking at how we decode emotional expressions in faces and we're finding some interesting results there. For example, 
if you have ambiguous facial expressions, which are a blend of, for example, anger and disgust, then after alcohol consumption, it seems that you're more likely to interpret those ambiguous faces as representing anger as opposed to representing disgust. And those effects seem to be specific to males, in particular male faces. So there could be parallel effects. So in other words, alcohol could both be affecting how we rate the attractiveness of faces, but also how we decode emotional cues in those faces. And those are not necessarily the same thing. They could be dissociated. So a further line that we want to pursue is the extent to which social cues and social context modify the effect of alcohol. For example, in the present study, we found that everyone rated everyone as more attractive. But in more ecological studies that have been conducted in less controlled conditions, but in a more representative environment, in bars, in other words, the effects do seem specific to opposite sex faces. So it could be that there's a general effect of alcohol on how we process facial expressions. But then when that occurs in a particular social environment or context, it becomes targeted at opposite sex faces. So the interaction of the pharmacological effect of alcohol and the social effect of the environment is really where we'd like to go with this. That was Marcus Monafo from Bristol University telling us how the beer goggle effect, or stellar vision as it's also known, really does work. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. And still to come on today's Naked Scientists, we'll be finding out why a life spent unsuccessfully hunting monsters is not a life wasted. But first, age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the most common cause of blindness in the UK, and there are relatively few treatments available. This makes the work of people like the London Project to Cure Blindness very important, and they're researching a new way to treat AMD. We sent Mira along to a special event where she met up with Pete Coffey from the University College London to find out more about this disease. It's a disease of the eye which affects the elderly, typically over the age of 60, and it affects the cells at the back of the eye that support the rest of the seeing part of the eye. And these cells, in a very, very small area, known as the macula, which is where your highest visual acuity is, deteriorate, die, and then no longer support the retina, and the retina starts to die as well, and that's when a person goes blind. There's um, a form called WET, and the reason it's called wet is during the disease process, vessels at the back of the eye start to grow into it and become very leaky. There's a dry form uh, in which you get the cells dying, but you don't see that bleed into the eye. The largest population is the dry form, and the dry form today doesn't have any clinical therapy available. What this project is trying to do is to replace those cells with healthy cells. How many people are affected with AMD? Uh, In Europe, there's about 14 million people suffer from some form of age-related macular degeneration. In the UK, typically 25% of the population over the age of 60. So this is a huge problem, much bigger than neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. What exactly are the main things experienced by someone with AMD? They're unable to read in the first instance. They find it very difficult to read text, even when it's magnified. They then lose the inability in all the central vision, so they can't even recognise faces, their own family, to the point where very, very blurred peripheral vision is the only thing they experience. What are you hoping to look into with the London Project? The London Project wants to use stem cells, turn the stem cells into eye cells and replace those dead cells at the back of the eye. 
And the way in which we aim to do that is to deliver a patch of cells which can be placed into a patient's eye surgically within a 30-minute surgical procedure. Why exactly are stem cells good for this? Stem cells are very good for this because they are very young, they're very plastic, and because the eye in the elderly patients is aged, it's diseased, we can replace them with healthy, young, new support cells. At the moment, in late-stage disease, when we've used the patient's own cells, we're getting about 25% success rate. We hope to improve that and perform the operation much more earlier in the disease, which would give a greater success. And you say you've used the patient's own cells, what, from their own eyes? From their own eyes. So cells have been harvested from non-diseased areas, and you take those cells from an area which they won't miss vision from, and you place them under the very high acuity area which is the macula. What happens to the region that you've just removed the cells from? The region from which we've removed them from does actually go blind because you've taken those support cells away but it's very very peripheral and the patient doesn't mind that as long as they can see where they're going, what they're eating, they are more concerned about their high visual acuity rather than their peripheral vision. So one of the current treatments involves taking some healthy support cells from the undamaged region of an AMD patient's eye and transplanting those healthy cells into the same patient's damaged macular region to restore central vision. But this method isn't possible in patients with severe damage and isn't always guaranteed. So with the London Project, the team are researching a possible treatment using human embryonic stem cells. These stem cells can be guided into becoming support cells and create a small patch of these cells that can then be put straight into a patient's eye where they then support the retina and potentially give the patient their sight back. It sounds promising, but have they got any evidence with stem cells to prove that it's really possible? We've shown that they have the profile we would want them to have as eye cells. We've managed to put them on patches. We've managed to place them in animal models of the disease. And we've also gone through a surgical procedure exactly the same way as we would do it in the clinic. And it's been very successful. That night, I also met the surgeon who was hoping to make this all happen, Dr Lyndon de Cruz from Moorfields Eye Hospital, and he told me how, in practice, these stem cell patches are going to make treatment for AMD easier. These stem cell patches we hope to be able to be delivered much more simply by a larger number of surgeons and be available across a greater group of people such that we could create thousands of the patches and then have them available. Part of the problem you were saying when it comes to treating the dry form is that there's quite a narrow window because you don't want to do it too early because the procedures are complex and if you do it too late it's too late basically. So how is this stem cell procedure going to help with that timing as well? That's a good point. In wet degeneration which we've been treating people would lose their vision over a very short period of time maybe a week or even two weeks. That flagged up a period when they went from a normal retina to a retina they couldn't see with. And that meant that the retina was pretty healthy. We could do our transplants or translocations and we had good results. With dry degeneration, it progresses over months or even years. And that means the vision is slowly being lost. And we often end up having to do the operations very late. This means the chance of getting good recovery is low. By creating a stem cell patch, a much simpler operation with lower risks, we'll be able to do the operation much earlier in the disease and hopefully rescue a lot more vision. So research into the potential use of stem cell patches to be transplanted into the eye could lead to treatment for a disease that not only affects so many in our population, but also currently has no treatment available at all. The therapy has only been verified in animals so far, 
But if the research continues developing, it could potentially help an entire generation to live a lot more comfortably. So hopefully by the time I'm in my 60s, they will have all but wiped out the need to live with AMD. That was Mira there with the London Project to Cure Blindness. Now, still to come today, Dave and I find out why the sweet spot matters in sports, and we get a sneak preview of a scientist-inspired album, The Superheroes of Science. But for now, Mira met up with eminent scientist Carl Gerassi. He was one of the team developing the first oral contraceptive pill in 1951 and has been very well awarded for his magnificent contributions to science, getting the National Medal of Science, the Perkin Medal, being featured in the National Inventors Hall of Fame and even getting his face on an Austrian postage stamp. A high accolade indeed, I think. But more recently, he's won critical acclaim for his playwriting, weaving science into theatre and into territories where science is rarely seen. Despite being born in 1923, he's been instrumental in writing some science-themed rap. Now, science and rap music sound like very strange bedfellows, but it's actually an enjoyable and inspiring combination. Yes, yes, y'all, you know that it's on. The rapper on the mic is MC Flaw, just thawn in the chemistry arena. I'm taking home the title. Sire, I'm dire, the fire that is vital. No recital, no World-renowned chemist Professor Carl Gerassi gave a talk at the Royal Society in London. Now, Carl's quite a legend, as he was the creator of the first steroidal contraceptive pill. But he's retired from the world of chemistry now and mastered the profession of playwriting, occasionally even using rap as a medium to communicate science. His event in London was titled Washing Dirty Lab Coats in Public, so I met up with him to find out what exactly he was trying to portray in his talk. When one talks to a general public about science, one usually talks about the science that is being done, the discoveries or inventions. I wanted to talk about the behaviour and culture of scientists, which is totally unknown really to the general public or else exaggerated the Frankensteins or nerds. And I want to show that we're really human beings with all of our qualities as well as foibles. And I try to illustrate this both uh, in my novels, which I call Science in Fiction, and in my theatre plays, which I call Science in Theatre. Would you say you're trying to get people to see the actual darker sides because there's not enough of that shown in the public as it is? Or are you trying to just show it the culture as a whole, so both the positives and the darker sides? Oh, absolutely the latter. I come from that culture and I cannot shed it. I think it is both the most cooperative of really human endeavors and the most brutally competitive at the same time. That is the unusual thing. It's important that people realize this. And I think the unrealistic thing is, you know, to put scientists on a pedestal. The other thing is, you know, since I'm talking to a woman, it's one of the evolving issues in every one of my plays and novels, the role of modern women in a male-dominated discipline, the very phallocentric nature of science, which is not unexpected because it was created exclusively by men who established the rules of the game. Now that women get into the field, also as professors and chairs of departments, so I'm writing about this. I'm writing about the barriers and so on. It's interesting that you talk about the role of women in the world of science. Some of your earlier discoveries had an effect on the place of women in society to begin with. You obviously were one of the inventors of the first steroidal contraceptive pill. Is that something that has resulted from things like the pill? I was involved in the first chemical synthesis of oral contraceptive. I'm a chemist, so that we did in 1951. The recognition, the impact that oral contraceptives would have on women and really on the world 
I think one would be lying if one said all these people realized all that in the 1950s because no one expected women would accept it that quickly and on that huge scale. And the implications, which also happen, people forget this, the 1960s, well, we say, well, pill caused the sexual revolution. The 1960s, well, then the decade of uh, rock and roll, music, uh, the hippie culture, the drug culture, and most importantly, the women's liberation movement, which really moved in the middle and late 1960s, particularly in the States. It was that mixture. Remember, the chemical was done in 51. The approval in the United States only came in 1960. came at exactly the right time. Are you quite proud of what's happened as a result of you creating such a steroid? Mm, absolutely. People often ask me if I could do it all over again. Would I do it? And I said the answer is yes. You had a very flourishing career as a chemist. What made you want to start writing and start wanting to do plays to show the culture of science today? It was a very logical transition because through the work on the pill, I did a lot of lecturing and teaching. I directed research in this area for a number of years. And I realized there where I really was talking about the cultural, psychological, economic, legal aspects, which are much more complex. And I decided to become an intellectual smuggler, really smuggle information that people either don't want to hear or they're afraid of it or there are no opportunities for this in the guise of fiction. And this is why I call it science and fiction rather than science fiction. But when they actually did get to the last page, they'd learn something whether they realize it or not. Who is it? It's me and I'm gifted. I'm binding elements that I'm finding have drifted. Transforming them into everything is so easy. Like salts and heavy metals, but not ACDC. What more can I say? You know I'm the bomb, the only one under the sun. MC Flodges Storm. You said you use things like a rap in order to help get some of your information across. How well have those been received? Well, that went fantastically well. These two raps that I commissioned, I didn't do them, nor did I sing them, I commissioned for Oxygen and for NO, and I've even done this, well, for instance, I did this rap yesterday, uh, one of them, the Oxygen rap at the Royal Society. Well, there weren't any young people there, but they were all beaming and bouncing. The rap is a very interesting style. And if you think about even some of the vicious rap, it has some interesting pedagogic information transmittal aspects. It's a very modern form of music. Well, first of all, it's unusual to do it in the context of science. So I wanted, of course, to do the unusual things so people get interested and at the same time absorb some information. What part of your career would you say you've enjoyed the most, the part as a chemist or the part as a novelist playwright? What I'm doing now is uh, writing plays or writing now, again, some nonfiction in dialogic form and giving lots of lectures, particularly in Europe. So I enjoy that most, no question. One of the reasons, of course, because you're entirely, totally, 100% involved in this without any infrastructure. And, you know, as a scientist, I have a team, you have to write grant applications, you do this and that and so on, and things move on even if you don't do anything. Well, now, if I don't write, no one else is going to do it for me. So I enjoy that most. Even if anyone else did do it for him, I don't think they'd do it as well. Carl's now written over ten plays and even more novels, which have all had success worldwide in portraying the culture of science. I'll leave you with another insert of his modern method of chemistry education. There's many elements, some we know about. The rest of weight still has to and that was Carl Jurassi telling Mira how his career in chemistry led to the creation of the oral contraceptive pill and his more recent interest in rap music. That interview is also featured in the Chemistry World podcast, which you can find on the web at chemistryworld.org. 
It is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. We're sitting in for Chris and the gang while they're off enjoying their long, hot summer break. And we're bringing you the finest science from our travels around the world. Now, don't forget that we do actually beam this programme straight into Second Life. That's live from 6pm UK time, which is 10am Second Life time. There's a great group there who discuss the science in the show. So if you'd like to join them, visit the Silands area and then just do a search for The Naked Scientists. You'll find our mansion where you can drop by relax on one of the sun lounges enjoy listening to the show and discussing the science involved with loads of other people from all over the world and while you're online why not tell us how you think we could make our show even better than it already is we want to hear from you about what you like or dislike and we set up a survey at the naked slash survey so you can give us all of your feedback well last week we discovered the enormous effort it takes to feed the olympic village so this week we're keeping the sporty theme together with a baseball-inspired kitchen science. Well, it's a beautifully sunny day today, so I'm really pleased that Dave has asked me to join him on the cricket pitch on Parker's Peace in Cambridge to do a bit of kitchen science. Now, Dave, you've invited me to the cricket pitch, but you've got a baseball bat. You do realise that's not the right tool for the job? Well, I do realise it's not quite the right tool for playing cricket with, but it's a lovely sunny day and people are talking about putting cricket into the Olympics, so I thought we'd talk about the physics of hitting things with bats. Cricket bats are rather complex shape and a baseball bat's a lot simpler. So as a physicist, we always take the simplest system first. What do we actually need to do this week? Well, if you've got a bat and a baseball or a cricket ball, take the bat, hold it with just two fingers so you can feel what's going on, and then take the ball, throw it with about the same strength and hit the bat in various different places. So maybe start at the bottom and work upwards and see if you can feel what's going on and see how the ball reacts. Okay, well, I'll start right at the bottom. So here we go. This wouldn't be very good in a game of baseball because as soon as the ball hit the bat, it dropped almost straight down to the ground. The bat sort of swung backwards a bit, but the ball dropped straight down. But that was right at the bottom, so now let's try it a bit further up, about, say, 10 centimetres up the bat. Uh, Here we go. Now, that time it, it didn't just drop straight down. It bounced a little further, and actually it sounded quite different as well. It felt like it vibrated less in my hands. Yeah, it does really quite strongly depend on where you hit the ball. And in fact, if you're swinging a bat at the ball, it's exactly the same thing is happening. And how fast it will bounce off will depend on where you hit it with the bat. So when you're actually playing baseball, exactly whereabouts on the bat you hit the ball makes quite a big difference to how far the ball will go. Well, there's sort of two things when you're playing baseball you're interested in. One of them is how much it hurts your hand, so how much your hand is moved when the bat hits the ball. And the other one is how far the ball goes. So why would it make a difference to where you hit it? As long as you hit the ball just as hard, then surely it's going to go just as far. We'll start off with, we can have a look at a piece of wood, which is even simpler than a baseball bat to think about what's going on. Now, this is just an oblong piece of wood you've got. It's only about an inch and a half by two, three inches or so. What are you going to show us with this? I'm going to hit it with this big heavy piece of wood at various points along its length, starting off somewhere near the top, maybe six inches below your fingers. As long as you do keep it below my fingers. Okay, so I'm dangling it again, just like we did with the baseball bat, and you're going to hit it with a big chunk of heavy wood. Uh, I don't think I can watch. Okay, go. Oh, thank God you missed. Now, that felt to me exactly what I'd expect. When you hit it, it pushed the bit of wood back in the direction you were hitting it. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. That's what you'd expect to happen. Now I'm going to hit it right at the bottom. Now that time the bottom of the bit of wood swung out in the direction that you hit it, but actually it felt like it was being pushed out of my hand towards the direction you hit it from. 
But surely it should have just gone back like it did the first time. Well, in fact, there's two things which happen when you hit a piece of wood. One of them is that the whole piece of wood starts moving in the direction you hit it. The other one is it starts to rotate around its centre of mass, which for a straight piece of wood is just its middle. So when we hit it up near your fingers, then the direction it's rotating and the direction it's moving in are in the same direction. So there's going to be a big vibration at your fingers and it's going to feel quite uncomfortable. But if you hit right at the bottom, now you're trying to twist it in the opposite direction. So the rotation is going to oppose the movement and it's going to actually going to push it away from your hand outwards. So when you hit it right at the bottom, there's a force that pushes the whole thing backwards, that's in the direction that you hit it. But because it rotates around the centre of it, its centre of mass, it also rotates out of your hand, so it pushes the top towards where you hit it from. Yeah, that's right. And so if somewhere in between, I think probably on a straight piece of wood, it's somewhere around about a third of the way up, you should find that it hardly moves in your fingers at all. Okay, let's try that again. So if you hit it about a third of the way up, I'll dangle it again and... Yeah, that didn't really feel like it moved in my hand at all. So the most comfortable place to hit a piece of wood that you're dangling in your fingers is about a third of the way up from the bottom so that the backwards force cancels out the rotation force and so it doesn't really pass too much force to your fingers. Now that's really useful, but surely it's got nothing to do with baseball. Well, if you swing for the ball and manage to hit it in that spot, which we call the centre of percussion, then it'll be much more comfortable on your hands. But that isn't the whole story. And if you're interested in how far the ball goes, there's another effect going on. And to explain that, I've got a smaller piece of wood down here. And with a small piece of wood, I can give much smaller, sharper hits. And so we can try and vibrate this piece of wood. Where are we starting this time? Uh, We'll start at the bottom. Okay, let's go up from the bottom. Okay, well, that was quite loud, and I could feel the vibration in my fingers. Shall we move up and hit it again? Yeah, I'll work my way up. The sound has really changed there. You're only a few inches up, but the sound is really different. And it doesn't feel like it vibrates as much. What's happening? Well, you can't really see the vibrations on this piece of wood. So if you imagine it was a really flexible, springy piece of metal and bent it into a C-shape and then let go, what's going to happen? I expect it would spring back to being straight, wouldn't it? Yeah, but once it sprung back to being straight, it would be moving really quickly. So it would carry on bending until it was a C in the other direction. And it would keep vibrating like this. This is the lowest speed of vibration, which we call the fundamental frequency of this piece of wood. So the piece of wood is doing the same sort of thing, and it's vibrating, although we can't see it. But then why does where you hit it affect the sound and the feel of the vibration at the end? Well, if you imagine that vibrating piece of metal, the two ends are going to be moving a lot, and the middle is going to be moving in the opposite direction. There's going to be two points about a quarter of the way in, roughly, on the piece of metal, which aren't moving at all. They're called nodes. And if you hit the piece of metal in that position, it can't vibrate in this C-shaped way. So I can see that where you would hit the baseball bat would affect how you'd set its vibration up. But what's that got to do with how far you can hit a baseball? Well, a baseball bat will vibrate best in either the C-shape or an S-shape, and all the other forms of vibrations don't work very well. And if you hit it in such a way as to vibrate a lot, then you lose a load of energy and the ball doesn't bounce off very much. So the act of making it vibrate absorbs some of the energy that otherwise you would have given straight back to the ball. And so the ball can't go as far. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why when you hit it right at the bottom of the baseball bat, it hardly bounced off at all because most of the energy went into vibrating the bat. Whereas if you got what's called the sweet spot a little bit up from that, the bat can hardly vibrate at all, so all the energy goes back into bouncing that ball off as far as possible. 
So really, when playing baseball, you want to know exactly whereabouts on the bat to hit the ball, because this could make the difference between a home run and being caught out. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bat manufacturers will very carefully tune the shape of their bat to try and get the sweet spot in the best place possible, and probably in a similar place to the centre of percussion we were talking about earlier, so it's very comfortable. So does this mean that baseball players actually tune themselves to their own bat? Yes, different bats will have different sweet spots, so that's the reason why they tend to like having their own bat. So you could actually fix a baseball game just by making sure that they get slightly different bats? It is possible, not something I've tried though, Ben. (laughs) Well, of course we wouldn't dream of that on The Naked Scientist. Well, that's all we have for this week's Kitchen Science, but next time we'll be back finding out if there's any real cause to say that something is as useless as a chocolate teapot. It may not be one you can do at home, but it's one I'm certainly looking forward to. We'll see you again very soon. Ben and Dave there, taking advantage of the brief bit of sun we've had this week to go out and play. And as always, there'll be a full write-up for that on thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, where we put all of our experiments so you can get full instructions of how to try them all out at home. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now, while we're making The Naked Scientists, we're imagining all of you listening in your cars, living rooms, computer rooms, etc., and hoping that you enjoy every minute. And maybe you're imagining exactly what The Naked Scientists look like. Well, it's possible that meeting us could be even better than you imagine, especially if you have the good fortune to meet Diana O'Carroll. Now, imagination (laughs) is a powerful tool and one that we often misuse. Mira met Daniel Gilbert from Harvard University to find out what our imagination really is. Imagination is the ability to conjure in our minds events that aren't happening and that didn't happen in the past. That usually means events that might happen, that could happen, or that will happen. And what's the purpose of imagination? Oh, well, without imagination, we're stuck in the moment. Our ability to imagine the future allows us to imagine which futures will be better than others. As such, we're able to select the good ones and avoid the bad ones. I don't have to chew a mouthful of thumbtacks to know that it's a marvelously bad idea. I know that a wedding is going to be more enjoyable than a divorce and a promotion more enjoyable than a demotion. And the reason I know all these things is because I can use my imagination to play them out. Imagination allows us to be the animal that learns from mistakes we've never made. And so when it comes to imagination and memory, what have you been looking at with your team? My collaborators and I for the last 10 years have been trying to understand how and how well people can predict their own hedonic reactions to future events. By that I mean the pleasure or pain that they'll get from events in the future. And what we found is that people don't do this all that well. They make systematic errors. They mispredict how intense their emotional reactions will be and how long those emotional reactions will last. And how have you been testing this? Well, there's a whole variety of studies one can do. Most of our studies are behavioral. They're very simple. You ask people to make predictions about how they'll feel in a certain future situation. You wait for the situation to come about or you bring it about in a laboratory. You measure how they really do feel. And then in a stunning act of mathematical complexity, you compare those two numbers. If they're not the same number, something interesting is happening. And indeed, they're almost never the same number. People rarely feel precisely the way they expect to feel. This is even with regard to events that are quite familiar to them. You say familiar events. So one of the tests you've been doing has been with potato crisps and um, chocolate. Yes, well, we use a whole variety of events ranging from the sublime to the mundane. But, you know, eating a potato crisp is one of the simplest hedonic experiences we can have. We put it on our tongue and we experience a certain amount of pleasure. People can reliably report how much pleasure they're experiencing. What we've found is they can't reliably predict how much pleasure they're going to experience even moments before they put it on their tongue. Some of the things that influence their predictions, we're finding, 
don't influence their experiences. For example, if they're in a room with chocolate, which most people consider far superior to potato crisps, they expect the potato crisps not to taste as good because they're mentally comparing them to the chocolate. But in fact, potato crisps taste just as good when you're looking at chocolate as when you're not. That's quite a hands-on particular experiment. But what other ways have you been trying to find out how people predict how they would feel about a situation? Well, we've done experiments that range from laboratory experiments to field studies. So in the field, we've looked at the generation and dissolution of romantic relationships, how people think they'll feel if they fall in love and how they think they'll feel if they break up. We've looked at people getting promotions and getting fired. We've looked at people winning and losing elections. So we've looked at many common events. And what's interesting is that the kinds of things we see with potato chip eating in the laboratory, we see exactly the same sorts of results when we look in the field at the kinds of big events that human beings really care about. So people, no matter what, people are always going to have a different reaction beforehand and after. And they always say if, about something devastating, they're always going to think it's going to be a lot worse than it actually is at the moment. Well, that does tend to be the form of most errors. Most people overestimate how bad they'll feel if bad things happen and how long they'll feel that way. But they also overestimate how good they'll feel if good things happen and how long they'll feel that way. The fact is most events don't affect us for very long. Most things become quickly irrelevant to our emotional well-being. Why do you think people are like that? Well, there's a lot of things about our emotional system that we just don't know. For example, we don't understand the speed with which we tend to adapt. Human beings are remarkably resilient creatures. They adapt to almost anything. But this seems not to be something they know about themselves, and so they mispredict the speed of their own adaptation. People are also remarkably good rationalizers. When something bad happens, they usually find a way to frame it so it's not quite so bad. So the moment the fiancé throws the engagement ring back in your face, you suddenly start thinking about all the things you really never had in common and how you probably shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. This is a widespread ability. We all recognize it in our friends, and we snicker a little bit when they do it. But we somehow don't realize that we also will do this and that this will make us feel much better when bad things happen. One thing you mentioned yesterday in the conference was about, um, say, when you're at a restaurant and you've got lots of things on the menu, people always worry that when they do finally make a decision, that's going to affect how they feel about the meal when it comes to it. So is there a difference, say, if someone's just got a large amount of choice, does that affect how they feel in the end? We really think when we have choices between many things that the thing we choose and the thing we don't choose will determine how happy we are. What our experiments reveal is it's really just the thing we choose. The things we leave behind become quickly irrelevant. Most of the time when we're driving our new car, we're not thinking about the other car we might have bought. What about if the thing you could have had is in front of you? (laughs) So um, say if someone else ordered the meal that you were thinking about having or has the car you thought about buying. Ah, now that changes things tremendously. So if the person you might have married but didn't moves in next door, you're in real trouble and you're probably going to spend a lot of time thinking about what your life might have been. But in most cases in life, the alternatives that we don't choose, unchosen alternatives, kind of disappear. We move away from them. Most of the time when we choose something, we discard the alternatives. But you're quite right. Occasionally, those unchosen alternatives are there to haunt us. And in those cases, they do make a big difference to the experience we're having. What next? What are you hoping to look into next? We're really trying to understand how to make these errors go away. We've spent over a decade demonstrating these errors, understanding their sources, and now we're doing some very exciting research to try to find how to make, help people make better predictions of their own future emotional states. One of the best ways to predict how you're going to feel in the future is simply to find out how other people actually do feel when they experience the same thing. 
That was Harvard University's Daniel Gilbert explaining how, when bad things happen, they're almost never as bad as we imagine. Now, there's nothing that fires the imagination more than a good monster story. And what better than one that may just be real? Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the abominable snowman, or just plain old Yeti, most biologists agree that these creatures don't exist. Yet amateur naturalists passionately believe that they're real, and they're gathering evidence to support it. We sent our own abominable scientist, Dr Katz, to find out more about the battle between professional scientists, the eggheads, and amateurs, the crackpots, in the hunt for the truth about Bigfoot. Brian Regal is Assistant Professor of the History of Science, Technology and Medicine at Keene University in New Jersey, USA. He's investigating the phenomenon of monster hunting, the search for creatures such as Bigfoot. I started by asking him what first got him interested in these strange creatures and the strange people that study them. Oh, well, I guess I was always interested in the more unusual aspects of history. As a doctoral student, I was working a lot on the history of evolution theory, and that's what I've mostly published on. But as I was doing that, I was finding these unusual stories about people and unusual ideas, and I came across uh, monster hunting. As I sort of liked the stranger aspects of history, I was immediately attracted to it. And uh, the more I looked into it, the more I saw that as a historian, there was materials available in archives and libraries around the world that could allow me to do Uh, kind of serious scholarly research into this field that had been essentially passed over by traditional historians of science and had become, like monsters themselves, uh, the sort of the domain of passionate amateurs. And I saw immediately the similarities between the history of monster hunting and the history of amateur natural history study in general. So what sort of monsters are we talking about? Can you give us some names we might be familiar with? I use the term monster as sort of a generic term, but mostly what I I work on are what I call anomalous primates. The Yeti, Sasquatch, Bigfoot. Uh, There's about a a hundred different names for animals around the world that are sort of monkey-like, kind of human-like, have traditions of being mythical animals, of scaring the local populace, and kind of existing in places where science normally says they shouldn't. So if science has been looking at this and says they shouldn't be here, Mm -hmm. what sort of tack are are amateur scientists taking? Well, the thing that's interesting about the amateurs is that they tend to ignore what the mainstream scientists tell them. Mainstream scientists generally, not all, there are some mainstream scientists... Uh, now and in the past, who thought these animals were real. But generally speaking, most biologists and zoologists say that from an evolutionary point of view, these animals don't make any sense. And so the amateurs, as being amateurs, not having that kind of formal training, just say, well, we don't care what you say about this theoretically. We have the evidence. We've seen these animals. We've seen their footprints. We've taken pictures of them. We've interviewed hundreds of eyewitnesses, and we're going to base our... Uh, opinion on the fact uh, of this evidence that we have and ignore what theory says shouldn't be there. So we have theory on one side saying no, we have evidence on the other side saying yes, things like Bigfoot do exist. What do you reckon? Where do you think the balance lies? Well, you see, I have an easy out for all of this because I'm not a zoologist, I'm I'm not a biologist, I'm not a scientist of any kind, I'm a historian. And so I can step back with the historian's eye and watch both sides and uh, I have no interest really in proving one way or the other. My, my research is not geared towards saying, yes, they exist, or no, they don't. 
In fact, if it doesn't exist, it's to my benefit because then I get to ask questions like, well, if this thing doesn't exist, why do so many people believe that it does? If it does exist, that sort of takes a bit of the um, interest out because no one is amazed that people believe in bears. But if someone says, I was just looking out my back window and Bigfoot walked by, then all of a sudden people are interested. As a scientist, one of the things you dread hearing is people saying, well, I'm no scientist, but But. (laughs) what does your kind of research tell us about maybe the role of amateur scientists? Can we ever find agreement? How can scientists and amateur scientists work together? Well, the, the role of the amateur scientist is extremely important in the history of science in general, especially in the West. Uh, and it goes all the way back to the late 1400s here in England. Uh, the first amateur naturalists appeared. And what you see happening is that if you look at the history of natural history, you see that a pattern emerges. Whenever some knowledge domain which has the potential to generate genuine scientific knowledge appears, what will happen is slowly but surely members of the amateur community will become more professional and outside professionals will become more interested. And a kind of displacement occurs where as more and more genuine information is generated and mainstream science, for lack of a better term, becomes more and more interested in this topic, more and more professionals will get involved and they will push out or displace the amateurs until you reach a point where the amateurs have been pushed out completely and it becomes a professional scientific discipline. And we've seen this over and over again with fossil hunting, with ornithology and bird watching, with plant collecting, botany, marine biology. Whenever some field is begun by passionate amateurs and it has uh, the potential to generate genuine scientific information, it will eventually professionalize and the amateurs get kicked out. And are there any fields where you see this happening now? For example, the search for big animals or maybe UFO studies? I I suppose they have the potential, but they haven't quite reached that point of critical mass yet. Because with all due respect to the amateurs who believe otherwise, there really hasn't been any evidence of flying saucers or Bigfoot produced that makes most of the scientists in the mainstream sit up and take notice. And that that is sort of the two-edged sword of these kind of fields because the amateurs want very much to get scientists and the mainstream interested. But in the back of their minds, they know that the moment the mainstream does get interested, that sort of marks the beginning of the end of their involvement. The day somebody comes in to a major university and throws a Sasquatch carcass on a dissecting table, it's all over because it's no longer fringe science, it's no longer pseudoscience or any of the other words that are sometimes used to describe this. It's now anthropology. And the amateurs, the crackpots are out, and the eggheads, the professionals, take over. That's the end of the story. That was Professor Brian Regal from Keene University in New Jersey talking to Dr. Katz about crackpots, eggheads, and the search for Bigfoot. You can find out more about his work with the June edition of Endeavour magazine and by searching the Keene University website, which is www.keene.edu. And we have our custodian of the questions with us now. It's Sarah Castor-Perry. Hello. Hi. And what questions do you have for us today? Earlier, Mira was talking about age-related macular degeneration and another condition that can affect the sight of people who are a little bit older uh, is cataracts. And these can really easily be removed. It's quite a routine operation nowadays. But it made Brian Kennedy from North Yorkshire notice something quite strange and he wrote in to ask us about it. He says, After having a cataract removal operation, I went outside with my eye still fully dilated. 
and I found myself nearly blinded by the strong light. Is the world really that bright and our eyes shut down and let in just enough light that we can manage it, or is what we normally see the real reality? Well, first of all, what we need to say is that the world is constantly bathed in light from the sun, most of which we can't actually see anyway, as it's in the ultraviolet or infrared ends of the spectrum. But we'll concentrate on visible light for now. Your retina does have a range of brightnesses over which it works best, so your eyes are always adapting to let in just the right amount of light, which is why when you look at someone in a dark room, their pupils will be really big and dilated, but when you're outside on a sunny day, they shrink to very tiny points. And in fact, your eyes do something even more exciting than this. You may have noticed when you go inside um, from being outside in the bright daylight that it takes your eyes a while to adjust to the darker light levels. And this isn't just the time it takes for your pupils to dilate. It's actually something to do with what's going on in your retina. And when you see light, a chemical called rhodopsin, which is in the cells in the back of your eye, changes to a different shape, which is how we see the light. As this gets converted into this different shape, it gets used up and you can't convert it back very quickly. So when you're sitting outside in a bright light, it's getting converted really quickly and it's really quickly running out. So when you go into the dark, there's not enough of it left for you to be able to see really well in the darkness. So the controlling factor is actually not the mechanical closing down of your pupil, but the chemical change in the back of your eye. Yes, exactly. So really the answer to Brian's question is that you are seeing a slightly less light than the world produces, but it's because your eyes and your brain have evolved that way to get the best out of them. Well, thanks for shedding light on that one, Sarah. Uh, I've got another question here from Roy Preston. He says, why do some people blink more than others? Right. Well, most people blink once every two to ten seconds. I mean, do you guys blink a lot or do you not blink very much at all? I don't think I blink that much, actually. I'm certainly not aware of myself blinking that often. I'm going to try and not blink now for the next few minutes. (laughs) It's like when you think too much about your breathing and then you just can't do it. So blinking can be triggered by irritants like dust or pollen if you get hay fever in the summer like I do. But it's mainly controlled by nervous impulses from the brain. So everyone has a sort of blinking pacemaker in their brain and everyone's different, so everyone's is set slightly differently. Now, this area of the brain is known as the chordate nucleus and it controls your blinking by sending impulses down the nervous system into the muscles around your eyelids. Now, there are, of course, other things that can affect your blinking, like fatigue and also some diseases like Parkinson's and nerve disorders. But what's quite interesting is that when we blink, we don't actually notice that we're blinking because our brains filter out the signal. So I suppose if you blink a lot, it's probably because your brain makes it that way or you need to get more sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, I said I don't notice myself blinking a lot, but my brain is wired for me not to. Exactly. It's the same as when you move your eyes around a room. Your brain sort of cuts out the signal of when your eyes are moving so that you don't get confused and feel like the world's spinning. It's called corollary discharge. Very interesting. So, Diana, how are you coping with not blinking? I think I've given up now. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, thank you ever so much. Uh, Sarah will be back with us in the next Naked Scientist to custode over a few more of your questions. Now, we've already seen today that chemistry and rap makes a surprisingly good combination. But what about bird spotting and bluegrass, or folk and physiology? Barney Brown and Rob Fisher are part of the Intercontinental Music Lab, a loose collection of musicians from as far apart as Tokyo, Sydney, Milwaukee and Cambridge. 
And they came together to create an album inspired by science and scientists. Due to be released for free later on this year, we were treated to a sneaky preview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crucible of Seals, where the universe unfolds under magical appliances in hands in latex gloves. So the idea for the album is to create something when you're in a position where you're not creating anything and you've got friends around the world who also want to create things and they're also not doing anything. So I decided I'd come up with a concept for an album and we would all record backing tracks around that concept and then we'd all swap them around and record vocals over those backing tracks and then hopefully we'd have a, a cohesive album within the space of about three months. So from that point onwards it was a case of choosing a topic which we could all write music about. And it seemed obvious to choose science and the world of science because we got the interesting emotional journeys of scientists but also the intricate and bizarre details of the science they were performing or, or discovering. Quite often you find that science-inspired music is educational. It's there to try and sell the message, whereas this, this isn't. This is merely music inspired by scientists. Yeah, that's right. And in some cases, the scientists came first, followed by the music. And in other cases, the ukulele came first. And then it was a case of discovering a scientist <laughs> that may have a ukulele in his backpack. And in, in the case of that, we discovered a, an organisation in the Pacific who were looking after some islands and trying to protect them from invasive species. And it seemed to be a, a nice mix for a solitary ukulele and a scientist perhaps sitting against a tree and counting birds. Dig the flow. The scientists that you do have aren't uh, necessarily scientists everyone will have heard of. You're not going for Einstein and Darwin. Some of them are a little bit obscure. So what was it that drove your choice of scientists to include? Well, I think everyone took very different approaches, and in some cases they'd start off with a scientist, perhaps something in a scientist sort of particularly appealed to them, or the sort of scientist gave a wide range of opportunity for the um, lyricist to record stuff over. Or in other cases, I think the backing track came first and they tried to find a scientist to kind of fit it over. With the two songs I did, one was one approach and one was the other approach. So which two scientists were they? I did Ignaz Semmelweis and for him I found the scientist first and then recorded the backing track. And he's a Hungarian scientist who discovered a link between sort of reducing childbed fever and washing your hands. But he was sort of ridiculed by the medical world. Uh, they didn't believe him. And it drove him to drink and ultimately to, to death. So there seemed a lot of opportunity for the lyricist in there to sort of cover that ground. I was going to say, I think it, it occupies the darker palette of the album probably, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, Although, it's on the darker side. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> on the lighter side, I sort of wrote a, a little track without any scientists in mind with sort of banjo and lap steel, which is quite a sort of happy, kind of marchy little tune. I spent a long time trying to find a scientist to fit its boots, so to speak, but ended up with John Weir because there just seemed to be a sort of nature vibe in the track. Uh, I just had this picture of uh, John Weir sort of marching through Yosemite, kind of bidding good morning to the birds and the bears and everything. <laughs> the clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness.
Well, so far you've mentioned Hungarian folk music and bluegrass, but there's lots of different styles of music. Now, were these all inspired because all the scientists you have are international? You have scientists from all over the world. I think we, musically we all come from similar and different backgrounds and we've, we've tried to hand at various different genres. And I think knowing that we're going to record a piece of music and hand it over to one of our so-called friends, in some <laughs> cases we decided on music that perhaps would be difficult to write vocals for to set a challenge because at the centre of this project is trying to encourage creativity. The different styles of music I think was probably more of a creative journey for the musicians rather than a, the scientists inspiring it. Although, like I say, the ukulele very much found a Hawaiian scientist to accompany it. And similarly, as Rob said, John Muir found a slide guitar in his back pocket. So. <laughs> well, a lot of these scientists have fantastic stories as well. It seems a very an untapped resource of incredible life stories, and a lot of the songs, as a result, are quite biographical. Were there any stories that really stood out? I had to write some lyrics about Alberto Santos Dumont, who made Paris his home, and he was very much interested in flying machines, both personal flying machines, but also flying machines for the mass market. And he, he really believed that through flight he could unify people around the world and wars and such like would, would become obsolete as people used flying machines to visit each other and settle their differences. And he worked through 20 different models of his flying machine. Where he used to fly to a particular bar in Paris and tether his flying machine to the lamppost and then enter the bar and, and entertain and then hop back into his flying machine and fly home. I thought that was quite <laughs> wonderful, really. So it seems to be more the characters of the scientists themselves than the science that has inspired this. But is there any particular track that's inspired by a particular act of genius or a particular discovery? I think probably the discovery of, of X-rays by Wilhelm Conrad Ronchen. It was early November, I was working in my room, passing a charge through a tube with a vacuum, a shimmering light upon the screen, a skeleton could plain be seen. Ollie Hayhurst and his kids who, who recorded that track did a wonderful job of, of explaining the discovery of X-rays and also the sort of humble character of Wilhelm, who, who didn't want to be the subject of, of the X-rays, hence the name, rather than them being called Wilhelm Rays or Conrad Rays. So what do you think the future is for, for science-inspired music? I think we've only just started tapping the seam, and hopefully it will inspire others to, to do a similar experiment. It is really, the whole thing is a musical experiment. In a way, we, we are sort of scientists. My occupation watching That was Barney Brown and Rob Fisher from the Intercontinental Music Lab. Keep an eye out for their science-themed album out later this year. We'll put a link on thenakedscientists.com. And it truly is a fantastic album. I was very privileged to get a sneak preview, so I do look forward to it. Now, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for on this week's Naked Scientists, but we do have a very important message before we go. Sadly, this week is the last time that we'll be helped out by the fantastic 
Mr Petro Minch. He's moved on to pastures new and sadly won't be with us again after today. So we'd like to say a very, very big thank you to Petro for everything that he's done for us in the past years. He's really made The Naked Scientist what it is. But that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time as it's a bank holiday here. So get all of your questions into chris at thenakedscientist.com and have a great week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.